The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. The biggest thing that I, you know, I'm trying to put out in my message, in addition to just telling the story of what I went through and trying to reduce the stigma a little bit, let people know that this is something that happens to a lot, literally millions, tens of millions of people, but also really talk about the resiliency piece of it, not just to stare at it like it's a car accident, but to understand it and say, well, how do you make your mind work better? How do you learn to better deal with the stresses and strains, ups and downs of life? or alternatively, things that are deeper and more problematic than that. And what I learned, slowly and painfully, as I like to say, is there's a path. You can, in fact, make your mind work better for you in the same way that you can make your body work better for you. I'm Maura Aarons Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. The voice you just heard at the start of the show is that of United States Congressman Adam Smith. He has served in the U.S. House of Representatives since he was elected in 1996, and he is ranking member of the House Armed Services Committee. For many years, Smith's anxiety drove a lot of his accomplishing. And in our conversation, he shares how he's grown and changed, and how now his commitment to the work and the accomplishments continue, but without the attendant anxiety and self-loathing. Smith did struggle with anxiety attacks for years, and he hid them. But he recently went public with the struggle, writing a book and speaking more openly about mental health. It's something that might have seemed impossible for a high-profile politician to do just a few years ago. And politics is such a high-stakes, high-pressure job. Smith has to run for re-election every two years. But Smith felt that being more open about his mental health could make a difference. And it has. His book is called Lost and Broken, My Journey Back from Chronic Pain and Crippling Anxiety. And he joined me to speak about both his physical and mental health, his role as a leader in America, and his role in improving mental health for workers across the country. How do you think anxiety has made you a better congressperson? It's made me vastly more empathetic. And I would say, you know, a lot of the insecurities that I had, as I say in the book, I have always cared a lot what other people think of me. And that's another thing that troubles me is I think there's become sort of a narcissism is too strong a word, but there's become an excessive individualized focus of it. Like the key to good mental health is not giving a damn what anyone else thinks. And I'm like, that's not a recipe for a very peaceful society. Okay. (laughs) You know, we got to figure out how to get along with other people. And for me, and I have this when, when I'm working on an issue, I want to get it right. And I want to properly explain myself. Okay. And if there's anyone I'm dealing with who's got that up, just blowing me off. They don't care. I am obsessed with the idea, not that I'm going to go to this person and change my mind or do what they want, but that I'm going to hear them. 
so that I understand where they're coming from. And I'm in a position to explain myself. And I think that comes a lot from my anxiety and my insecurity. I'm genuinely worried about the world around me, what people think, and whether or not I'm being a good, responsible person. That matters to me. And it's motivated me because of that anxiety and insecurity that's been with me, you know, my whole life. Anxiety shows you care. You know, it's funny because one of the things that you wrote, I, I swear, I was like, oh my gosh, he's reading my mind. Y you wrote that as you reflected back, you had always felt fear and insecurity. They were sort of constant companions, but they didn't mix well with your large ambitions. Okay. How could I be so ambitious and so utterly fearful of so many basic things? <laughs> I love that. And I feel like many of the anxious achievers I speak with feel this, this really seemingly contradictory mix. Well, and that's an important thing along the road of what I was saying earlier of how do you figure out how to deal with your emotions and what you're feeling? And the other big thing that I believe is understand that you're going to feel them. Okay. Don't think that what treatment means is I'm never going to be nervous again. This isn't going to bother me. No, it's how you process it and how you deal with it. And yeah, I had this vivid memory. I didn't put the story in the book, but when I ran for Congress the first time in 1995, long, complicated story that isn't worth getting into, but I'm working my way through it, trying to figure out what other Democrat might run against me and some news broke. Another Democrat was going to run against me. It was going to complicate the race. And I had to fly back to Washington, D.C. in the middle of this because the DCCC, the campaign arm, had asked me to come back as a candidate. And, you know, I get stuck in Detroit. It's like January and I'm at the airport and the person who's thinking about running against me has become like a national thing. And there she is on TV, on like the TV monitor. And I'm sitting there and, and the exact thing that I said to myself when I just put my head down at the, on the counter, I said, why did I do this to myself? Mm. I didn't have to do this. Right. Okay. Thousand different other things I could have done with my life that didn't involve this amount of stress. <laughs> it, there's that feeling. Now, in the moment, even back then, when I wasn't, I didn't have as good an understanding of my mental health, I did know that, you know, after about an hour of self pity, I got out my notepad and I started making a list of what I need to do. Mm -hmm. It's in front of me, let's go, you know, let's let's figure out how we how I do the best I can in that situation. But when you're doing something difficult, when you're moving forward and you feel that anxiety. I think you have to understand that that's part of it mm -hmm. and it's okay. You're not going to not feel that. What you have to be able to teach your brain to do through a whole series of different therapies and depending on why you're feeling that anxiety, the treatments and the methodology can vary. You have to figure out how to deal with it, how to process that emotion and move forward. And part of it is you don't have to go chasing after every emotion that you feel. Um, that's right. Understand it, notice it and then get back to doing what you need to do. But there's a lot that you need to learn to be able to do that. The thing that I like that you just illustrated is, is you, you gave your anxiety a job, right, by making a list and putting together a game plan that, you know, right. I think we're, we can all swirl and worry. And I know from reading your book that you're very good at worrying. But, um, <laughs> but, but you basically took the anxiety and was like, okay, let's get to work. Yeah. And I think the important thing is also every individual brings something different to this. There can be a lot of different reasons. And certainly, I guess I would, in a sort of neat sort of way, which oversimplifies it, I would divide dealing with anxiety and to some degree depression into two distinct categories. One is sort of the immediate stuff that you're aware of and how it's impacting you and how do you deal with that. When stresses come and you feel it, you know, what are some methodologies? This is cognitive behavioral therapy. 
what are there some methodologies for dealing with the anxiety or the depression or things that are in front of you that you can absolutely identify? There's a bunch of different methods for doing that. But then the second part is there are things that go a lot deeper that may not be within your conscious awareness. And certainly I had a lot of that traumas from different points in your life, things that you haven't properly processed. And that's where deeper ideas like psychotherapy and having a conversation with a trained therapist can help you get at some of those underlying issues that are making you more anxious than the circumstances might warrant. Let's talk a little bit about your story. You said you had a panic attack for the first time in 2005. Yeah. Why was that sort of a fulcrum moment? Well, because, and this is, again, a little hard to describe, but I've come to draw a distinction between being anxious and having clinical anxiety. Yes. Now, a lot of things had happened in my life, gosh, more than I could possibly relate up to that point that it had me like, you know, I always say during really intense campaigns, I could never get to bed before midnight and then five o'clock, I'm up, let's go, you know, I'm just all jittery moving and 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 then a bunch of different other things that happened in my life you know health scares or you know a conflict with someone that had me feeling all you know this was totally different in 2005 mm. this was an uncontrollable anxiety that didn't have any specific source nothing had really changed in my life from the day before to the day that all of a sudden my heart was racing my stomach was in knots i couldn't sleep i could barely eat it was it was an anxiety that just came upon me. And the only other thing, you know, when I was this probably, I don't know, 15 years before that, I had a similar bout of depression where just this incredible dark, depressed state came over me for four or five months for no reason that I could discern. And that's where, as I again, my my little dividing line there, everyone has mental health issues where they need to figure out how to better deal with the stresses and strains, ups and downs in life. And then there may be that next layer where you have things in your subconscious that are triggering a level of anxiety or depression that defies that sort of easy explanation. And 2005 is when I crossed over into that other category. I'm so sorry you went through that. And I, I agree when describing it, it's like it can come out of nowhere and then you're certain you're going to die. Yeah. Or you're, for me, I was certain and there's nothing I can do about this. I am literally going to feel this way until I do die. And how can I possibly handle that? How can I possibly live every day enjoying absolutely nothing in a constant state of existential panic? So you did work your way back, though. You did. Yeah. I'd love you to share how you did it and what worked for you. Yeah. Well, the first time in 2005, I just sort of got past it. I went and saw a psychiatrist. I took some anti-anxiety meds, clonazepam, you know, on and off for like four or five months. But I never really figured anything out. It just kind of went away. For whatever reason, it lifted and I slowly started to feel better. You know, And then eight years later, same thing, came back 2013, but this time it wouldn't go away. And that's where I went through about a six-year struggle trying to figure it out. And that involved a dozen different therapists, psychiatrists, psychologists, antidepressants, anti-anxiety medication. Also, in the midst of it, I developed severe pain. So I went through three hip surgeries and had. I was also taking a lot of pain medication at that point, mixed in with that, which always brings the question of, was my pain caused by my mental illness? Short answer is, in my case, no. I mean, I'm sure the two fed off of each other, mm -hmm. but I had some physiological problems that took me forever to find a muscle activation therapist who figured that out. 
So I went through that for about six years. Ultimately, the way I got out of it is I found a psychologist, 12 times the charm, (laughs) understood what was wrong with me. I went through three and a half years of psychotherapy with him. And really the key to it as a starting point was the first thing he said to me when I met with him after I'd filled out a rather lengthy questionnaire. He looked at the questionnaire and he said, you don't think you have the right to exist. Oh my God. And what he meant by that, as I slowly figured out, was I did not have a fundamental sense of my own self-worth. And that was putting an enormous amount of pressure on me. So it took about three and a half years for him to convince me, A, that that was a problem and that I really did feel that way. And B, figure out how to fix it, how to understand what that self-worth meant and why I should have it. And obviously there was some cognitive behavioral therapy stuff in there as well. But really that was the key was to understanding that basic principle of an inherent sense of self-worth. And if you don't have it, you're going to have some mental health problems. I think it's interesting that, I mean, running for Congress every two years is basically revalidating your self-worth and getting elected and having people give you money. So like what better way to validate your self-worth externally than to run for Congress every two years? Yeah, that was part of the problem, you know, ironically. Because now, now look, the other thing that sort of helped me, because I didn't have the sense of self-worth, I had to work extra hard to prove to myself that I was worthy. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Which meant that I had to accomplish things. And I did, you know, for whatever reason, you know, I was fortunate enough to have the career that I wanted, be successful at it, be good at it. I'm in a really good marriage. I've got great kids, you know, so I had all of that, but it's kind of like running on a treadmill that's slowly speeding up. Mm-hmm. what's next? Right. All right. I did all this, but, uh, and if I'm doing it because I think that's what gives me self-worth and that's what the psychologist said to me. And I, I document this in the book. And when he said it to me the first time, I was like, no, come on. You know, I'm, I'm confident. You know, in fact, a lot of people have accused me of being arrogant at one time or another in my career. And I said, I'm successful in my career. Here's everything I've done. And he said to me, so that's where you think your self-worth comes from, your job and what you're good at. And me, being the smart guy who always knows what other people are thinking, thought, oh, oh, I see what you're saying. No, I care about relationships too. You know, I'm I'm a good husband. I'm a good father. And then he really blew my mind when he said, so that's where you think you get your self-worth from, from, you know, how good you are in relationships and how kind you are to other people. And I was like, well, of course, where else does it come from? And his point was, it comes from just being human. All right. We all have self-worth. Now, that doesn't mean that what, because this is what I was really hung up on. It's like, are you saying that I'm no better than someone who, who treats people terribly? And that's not what they're saying. But even that person, even that horrible, awful, terrible person has self-worth. They do because you're human. And if you don't believe that, if you don't think that, then every single day you're in an existential crisis by definition. You are trying to prove that you're worthy of existing. And that, my goodness, we all fail. I mean, I talk about I've been successful, blah, blah, blah. I could sit here for the next two hours and list everything that I've failed at. So you're never going to be perfect. You're never going to be able to have a sense of internal self-worth because you do everything right. Just not going to happen. And so you're constantly on this treadmill that you can't possibly keep up with. I ask this as an honest question. What does it feel like to face the day with a sense of inherent self-worth? Versus versus before times. Yeah, no, it's unbelievable. I'll tell you, and this was my final hurdle. 
And I document this in the book because he's laying this all out to me. But in my mind, everything that I had done well, I had done, and people will tell you this, you know, I'm always the guy who's like worried, 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 you know, and but to my mind, that was how I succeeded. Yes. You know, yes. why other people were like, oh, we got this. It's all just fine. I was the guy, got this, got this. Are you kidding me? Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Have you thought about the other thing? And then I'm out there and I'm doing it. And I was like, so if I'm not existentially freaked out on a day in and day out basis, am I going to be able to succeed? And the answer to that question is yes. And that was the most beautiful thing in the world is I was in the middle of an epic political fight in 2019 when I was finally getting to the other side of the psychotherapy and my hips were starting to feel better and everything, you know, and I went into that battle and in the middle of it, I was like, this is awesome. I'm not, you know, driving myself into the ground, but I'm still thinking, I'm still working. I'm still the obsessive, let's figure this out, get it done person. But as I said, and this is the sentence that I came up with in my head that resonates with me so well. I did all of it, but without the anger and self-loathing. And it's so much better that way. I can't even begin to tell you because I used to think, you know, if I don't go home at the end of the day and go, God, Adam, why'd you say that? Right. You know, you knew that. "Ah," You know, I just, uh, uh, and then I'd get angry about it. And then I'd be like, you know, I felt like I had to do that. And then I realized I don't. I can think about it from a positive self-worth standpoint with the same level of detailed analysis, just without beating myself up and being angry about it. What do you do with all the extra brain space that all the worrying used to take up? (laughs) I try to solve the world's problems. (laughs) (laughs) And believe me, that gives me plenty to work on. Yeah, I was going to (laughs) say. I I don't want to get into politics here, but you know, I'm pretty high up in, in Congress and on the Armed Services Committee now. So you know, I'm looking at the world and I'm deeply worried about what is the U.S. role in the world. You know, we've got wars in the Middle East and Ukraine. We're trying to figure out how to get along with China. Back home in my district in the Seattle King County area, we have a major problem with behavioral health, mm-hmm. with homelessness, with housing, with criminal justice. And so basically that brain space goes to figuring out how can I help on these things? How can we make this better? Who who do I need to talk to? You know, I think through the issues that I'm like, okay, if I want to accomplish this, do I need to call up the King County executive? I've got a friend here. I've got, you know, is there something I need to bug the Department of Defense about or the White House? That's what I'm thinking about these days. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing. New currencies come and go. Decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. 
I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Beret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. Did you think about or in your therapy come across the role of ego? You know, I was having this discussion with my own therapist and she said, you know, more it's very important to you to always be good and do good for others, but you're often doing it from an ego place, not as altruistic a place as you think you are. Because, you know, again, the anxiety drives you to always do good and help people and solve their problems. But it's coming from an anxious place. Yeah. You know, and that's something I haven't, I, I'm aware of it. I haven't thought about it in any depth. It's funny. I'll, I'll go to a Friends episode for this one. There was this sort of Friends episode when when Phoebe was, I, can't, I forget who it was she was tormenting with this thing. I think it might have been Ross. But she's like, she says, nobody ever does anything out of the goodness of their heart. <laughs> they always do it for their own personal benefit. In this whole episode, he's trying to give examples. And she's like, okay, you did that, but it makes you feel better about yourself, right? Well, yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. So so from that episode, I don't draw as hard a distinction on that. Ego, like a lot of other emotions that you have, can be a force for good or a force for bad. And if your desire to feel good about yourself, to think that you're good at something, pushes you to want to do something well, that, that benefits others, I kind of see the benefit of that. Now, I think that your therapist is a dangerous path. I mean, if you go down a pure ego path, then it does. I can see where that becomes self-defeating. You got to figure out how to manage it in the same way that you got to figure out how to manage an anxiety that motivates you to want to do better. Yeah. And I don't even mean ego in the sense of oh, ego. It More in a sense of how we view ourselves is as someone who is helping, who is filling that role, that our self-image is very tied to certain behaviors, right? Yeah. In terms of what motivates you to want to do, do those things. Yeah. And I'm just curious if the motivation to keep fighting the good fight, because you've been fighting the good fight and we need people like you to fight the good fight, Lord knows, if you find that your motivation feels different now that it's not coming from a place of anxiety and fear. Absolutely, it does. It feels more natural and less forced mm -hmm. is, I guess, the, the best way I, I would put it. And, look, I, and I've wondered that, you know, I mean, the ambitions I had when I was a child and into my teens and early 20s, you know, I would go out, do the work I do. Am I doing this because I want the community to be a better place or am I doing this because I want to be the guy? I want to have that feeling. And now, you know, having been in that position, I've been elected for, gosh, 33 years now, I'm kind of past that. Mm -hmm. You know, I've, I've proven it to myself and I've done it and it's fine. And, and I find that even at this point, you know, I don't have any desire to quit my job and just go make a bunch of money. Yeah. Now, in my profession, you know, the, my constituents will have a say in that too. And someday they may well boot me out and then I'll go do what I'm, I'm going to do. But, you know, I know a lot, a lot of people in my profession tend to want to do that. So, oh gosh, you know, I could make more money if I did this, did that. I don't feel that like at all. 
I'm happy with where I'm at and I want to keep doing it. I think it comes from a a more reflective place as opposed to a place of panic and anxiety. Yes. I want to talk about chronic pain a little bit. I think chronic pain is something we don't talk about enough and it affects every breath we take. It's that powerful. Absolutely. How did you fly across the country? I mean, you go from Washington to Washington. <laughs> that is Yeah. How did how did you do it? It was really hard, but my whole life, the one thing I've had, I don't quit. Mm. I just, you know, I don't know why, whatever. It's just like, God, was, there were some days when man, I just, I, and it, that I'd worry about that every, you know, when I knew I had to fly the next morning, I had to do stuff just trying to get back. I mean, I just took the next step every time, but it was, it was very difficult. And the flight certainly, but then just going to meetings, things that would come up that I would have to do you know, sit in a hearing for 12 or 13 hours. I took pain medication. I took anxiety medication, depending on what was going on. And I kept working at it. And I think, honestly, one of the things that that saved me was I love solving puzzles. I love figuring things out. Well, all of a sudden, I had one incredibly important, big, complicated puzzle right in my life every day. <laughs> you know, you would not believe the analysis that went into me trying to figure out how to solve my mental health and my chronic pain problems. You know, okay, well, I did this exercise and this hurt, or, you know, I laid in bed for this long, or I sat here, this hurt. And it wasn't until I found the the muscle activation people who taught me how my muscles work, that my body began to function better in the same way that my mind began to function better. I think a lot of our audience might be interested. Muscle activation therapy? Yeah. See, I think it's simple to explain, but I give this little like one minute explanation that I'm about to give you frequently and people just look back at me blankly, but I'll give a shot anyway. What muscle activation people have done is they've figured out how our muscles work. Mm -hmm. Okay, Muscles are definitely connected to our nervous system as well. But in your body, there are 43 distinct muscle patterns and every movement that you make is controlled by one of those 43 patterns. Okay. And they analyzed it and figured that out. And they can go through by putting you up on a table and moving your body around. They can figure out how many of those patterns are working. That's the second most important concept. Muscle patterns shut down. What that means is that if you do something that harms it, your muscle goes into a defense mechanism. Mm -hmm. It's not going to fire like it's supposed to if it's shut down. And that means that that muscle isn't working as well to protect well, other muscles, but also joints and tendons and your spine and everything else, all those other parts of your body then have to start working in ways that they weren't designed to work. Because if your muscles are working, the human body is the most unbelievable machine in the world. Yes. All right. So then they figured out, okay, well, we'll put you up there, we'll run through it. And if it's not working, we're going to turn it back on. They started by doing a massage, manual massage on the muscle group. Now they have an electric pulse uh -huh. that they shoot to it that restarts the muscle instantly. And then importantly, they will then stress the muscle again to shut it down again and then start it back up. And I finally met the guy who started this whole thing, Greg Roscoff, guy out of Denver, who said that what it's doing is it's teaching your mind, okay, so, okay, you've turned the muscle back on, but your mind's still not really going to believe it right. past a certain point. So you teach your mind, no, we're good. 
the nervous system reconnects to the muscle and then it'll stay on more. And once all of your muscles are working, I mean, I still have bad hips and bad knee, bad back, all that other stuff. It doesn't hurt because my muscles are working the way they're supposed to work and they protect all of that. I'm physically in less pain than I've been in since I was probably 16 years old when I had my first knee surgery because my muscles are working and I go see the guy, seeing him tomorrow, see him every couple of months. It really changed me in a way that a hundred different physical therapists, massage therapists, you name it, really could. Thank you for sharing that. I I have migraines, and so I connect with people over chronic pain, and and I always sit yeah. in meetings, and I think, how many of these people are in pain right now in this meeting, but feel like they can't say anything? <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. We all sit there. Yeah, and I and I think about that. I hope that helps with empathy with people. Mm-hmm. I say this in my book. I as as this was progressing. Because, you know, part of what, when you're not feeling well, you, you want to know, well, what are the people like me? If, if people are in the same boat as you, it makes you feel better, you know, because you think it's more normal and more, more you know, it's not as big an outlier. So, yeah, I would literally sit in meetings and look around and go, all right, I, nobody in this meeting looks like they're in pain. They don't look like they're having mental health problems. But then again, neither do I. So, you know, you'd be aware if you're dealing with someone who seems upset or argumentative or whatever, you really don't know what's going on with them. I think people sometimes, because of the way we portray mental illness, they forget and don't know how highly functional so many of us are. That is, that is as true a statement as I've heard in a long time and really important. One of the things that you talked about that I really appreciated was about stress. You had a psychologist who said, it's not about the amount of stress in your life. It's how you process it. And that is, again, not something that we normally hear about, right? We assume more stress, we're going to burn out. But your psychologist wasn't saying that. Is that something you you agree with now? Or Oh, absolutely. And I didn't agree with it at the time. And that was part of one of the many mistakes I made as I was trying to figure this out is I wasn't thinking at all about that. I was thinking about, well, you know, it's like if I can't run a marathon anymore, then, you know, I'll just run a half marathon or if I can't run a walk, you know, I was thinking in terms of, well, just, you know, reduce the amount of stress in your life and then everything will be fine. You can't really control that. First of all, stress is going to come at you from one direction or another. But then also it is going back to where we started on how do you make your mind work better? And part of it is you can control your reaction to things to a far greater degree than you realize. You can, in fact, teach your mind to react in a less stressful way to stimuli in the same way that you can teach your body to run further by building up your cardio. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of different examples. Cognitive behavioral therapy gets into this in great detail. But the simplest thing that came to me from this psychologist and a couple other places was meditation. I talk about meditation in the book. And I always thought of meditation as like you sit there and all your thoughts go away and you float to this other plane of existence and you start. And there are maybe some people who can do that. But the meditation that's most important for most of us is to understand. And the phrase that comes to me is just notice it. Mm-hmm. Thought comes into your head. It's You're not trying to banish the thought. Just don't chase it. Notice it. Okay. I feel this. I don't have to figure it out. I don't have to know what it means. I don't have to label it. Just, oh, it hit, let it go. And so I spend time still every day doing that, you know, and there's some basic meditation apps that you can do that walk you through this. You know, notice the the sounds, the smells, the feelings, the wind, whatever it is, without any reaction to it whatsoever. 
And that's a huge part of what can help you deal with so that you don't have to, the emotion hits you, you don't have to chase it. And you can sort of learn, is it going to help me in terms of what I'm trying to do to chase after this emotion or not? And just so you know, and I actually have a really good example of this right now, it's not like I've suddenly become some sort of Buddhist monk. You know, 45 minutes ago when I was late to get on your podcast and it told me that I had to go through Chrome instead of going through Safari and I went to Chrome and then it told me I had to download a new update of Chrome and I tried to download a new update of Chrome. Ah. It didn't let me update the the thing and I went through it like three or four times and I'm pounding on the desk in here and my son's like, dad, what's up? You know, and I'm like, yeah, I, I was angry. I was frustrated, you know, but for like 30 seconds it hit me and I was like, ah. and I don't think that was necessarily the most productive minute and a half of my life. All right. So it happens, but then, okay, I'm over it. I'm fine. We'll figure it out. We did some text. We connected and all that. So I'm not saying that somehow you get to be this person who never reacts to anything, Right. which is really important to have that idea in your mind. This is how I get to sleep now. I sleep just fine. Part of the reason I used to not sleep well is if, if something was worrying me, I felt like I had to figure it out mm-hmm. to shut my mind off. Mm-hmm. I had to. And I finally was like, no, I mean, I, the problem's going to be there in the morning, okay? And if you solve that one, then a different one's going to be there. You have to be willing to just sort of notice it, let it go and say, you know, for right now, I'm shutting down. Unhook. Unhook. I love it. Yeah. You have such a very common sense and clear way of explaining things that a lot of people make very complicated. I really appreciate this. In an interview you did, you, you talked about the need to demystify trauma. Yes. Demystify trauma for us. How do you see trauma? First of all, one of the things that really hung me up too is that's what people said. I said, look, if you're having this clinical anxiety, there has to be some trauma in your life that you haven't dealt with. And this actually threw my psychologist for a little bit because he kept trying to probe with me. Well, was your father an alcoholic or you abused? Trauma doesn't have to be some big thing. Now, sometimes it is. And I'll get to that in a second. It means people are abused. You know, they're, you know, thrown from foster care to foster care. They have abusive parents. They have alcoholic, unstable upbringings and all of that. But trauma is just sort of how your personal brain encountered it. For me, I was adopted. You know, I was with my biological mother for like 10 days before she gave me up for adoption. There was some tension there. I flew all the way across the country. I was born in Washington, D.C., but was raised out here by my adopted parents. And, you know, my mother had depression, which I didn't know about. My father was a little bit anxious. So I had an unstable upbringing, but it wasn't anything in sort of the classic category. So that's number one. And trauma also can just be something that happened to you when you were younger, where something happened to you that you didn't resolve. Or a lot of times it can also be guilt, something you did, something that you feel bad about, that you buried, never quite dealt with. So these subconscious things can come from a lot of different directions. That's number one. It doesn't have to fit in any of these traditional categories. Second, in terms of how you deal with it, it's crucial to bring it back out into the open, Mm -hmm. to be honest with yourself. You can lie to everybody you want to lie to. Don't lie to yourself. (laughs) A little bit of an overstatement on the first part of that. (laughs) Best to lie too much. But if you're lying to yourself, your mind's going to know. And that can come up. And then the third piece of it, and this is really the most encouraging thing that I will say in this interview, psychiatrists, psychologists have really started to figure out how to help the brain deal with all of those traumas that I just described. Basically, what they have figured out is you really have to rewire your brain 
and how it perceived that experience. Okay. Your brain has perceived it in a certain way, buried or whatever. And what they've done is there's now e- uh, EMDR. Mm-hmm. I get my yep, yep. There's a couple of different therapies, no drugs involved. And I'll get to that in just a second too. They just really open it back up. Psychologists who told me about the stress thing. Also, you know, it's almost sometimes it's like hypnosis. Mm-hmm. And part of one, one method is to have you re-experience the trauma so you can better deal with it. There's other things that they can do, but basically they literally rewire how your brain perceives that trauma so that your brain becomes more okay with it. There are also a variety of different drugs. Psychedelics have become popular. Ketamine, which sadly is in the news now because of what happened to Matthew Perry. And I worry about the drugs. I'll just say that. Hands down, one of my biggest lessons, we prescribe way too many medications to way too many people. Absolutely. That is not to say that sometimes you don't need them. But I am worried about all this notion that we're going to put you on a psychedelic drug and that's going to rework everything. Maybe, but it's really imprecise and risky as opposed to just doing it the EMDR or the talk therapy way. And I'm you know, not a psychiatrist. I don't prescribe meds. I don't know anything about that. Maybe there's something going on there I'm unaware of, but I think there are some good non-pharmaceutical treatments can really help you rewire your brain to better process whatever trauma it is you're feeling that's causing mental health issues. One of the things that you don't shy away from is that this is work. There's no pill you can take that will fix everything. It's part of the process. As we close out here, I want to just focus on leadership. You're a leader. You're a manager. You're a national leader in our country. If you could wave your magic wand and give every leader a skill set, what skills do you think make for a mentally healthy leader? I think two of the biggest things that occur to me, number one, is you got to have the ability to listen. Mm. Really have to have the ability to patiently perceive the situation that you are in. Most of the mistakes that I've made in my life are because I've made assumptions mm. about what was going on, what someone was thinking, where they were coming from before I had adequate information. I always say, I mean, the two big things is you have to be patient, you have to be inclusive. But the second thing I say is you do have to be decisive because mm. yeah, you can accumulate, you're never going to know everything. And I've seen, gosh, and I could go off. I'm a Democrat, but I have a little bit of a rant about left-wing politics these days, which I'll, I'll leave out here. But paralysis by analysis is a major problem with my side of the political spectrum. This notion that You have to hear from absolutely everybody and absolutely everybody has to be satisfied before you can move forward. Yes. You have to listen. You have to be patient. And when you're decisive, don't be a jerk about it. And I do this all the time. It's like, I'm not saying that your opinion is important. Hell, I'm not even saying that you might not be right. I'm just saying that we've analyzed this. This is where we're at. And this is what we have to do. And we're going forward, which is the final piece of advice. Leadership has to be about people. Okay. You have to care about the people that you are leading and the people that are impacted by your decisions. Okay. That's what it's about. If it's about, now this is to your ego point. Maybe we're coming back to it. If it's about your ego and if it's about you being right and it's about you proving that you should, should be here, that's trouble. Mm. It has to be about the people that you are responsible to and for. One of the things that you said, and I've heard from lots of leaders I've interviewed, is that their struggles with mental health have made them more empathetic. Absolutely. And help them lead. 
Yeah. Well, I think one thing, you know, when you're trying to get things done, <laughs> so I just go ahead and say this, when you're trying to get things done, people are a pain in the ass. Okay. <laughs> yes. And when I was younger, I'd feel that. I'd say, oh gosh, okay, this is what we got to do. I know this is what we got to do. I figured it out. I've talked to this person. We have to go and you're like, well, I don't know. I'm not sure about that. You're like, are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so yeah, you know, as you deal with your own anxiety and your own problems, you begin to respect the perspectives of other people more. And it does make you a better leader because at the end of the day, you can be as right as the day is long. If people don't see it, if they don't agree with you, not going to matter. You got to bring people along with you. And that takes patience. And if you have empathy, you're going to be more likely to get there. That's a great note to end it on. Thank you so much, Congressman. Awesome interview. Really appreciate your perspective. And I really appreciate you giving me the chance. That's it for today. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends. I would love you to leave a review because they really matter in helping the show get found. You could also follow us or subscribe. If you have a question for me or you want to submit an idea for the show, find me on LinkedIn where you can follow me, message me, I promise I'll write back, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the anxious achiever world. Thanks for listening.